Welcome to What the Kids Were Watching, a podcast about the weird, wonderful, and terrible babysitter movies of our youth. My name is Sada. With me is Raphael. Hello, Raph. Hi, Sada. Nice to join you on the couch once again. That's right. We are recording this podcast from the comfort of our couch. We are accompanied by my 16-year-old rescue dog, so if you hear a snort... Or some ears flapping, I assure you, it is not me. That's uh, that's just bonus material that you get with this podcast. What the Kids Were Watching is a podcast about, like I said, the movies from our youth. It's about movies that, thanks to the magic of the VCR, VHS tape, and HBO, all three-letter acronyms, we were able to watch most movies as much as we wanted. And there were some movies that we just watched over and over again. The movie we're discussing today is one of those movies that we both of us just watched on repeat. Unlike some of the other movies in this podcast, I haven't seen this movie in almost 30 years. I rewatched it for the first time in decades two nights ago. Pretty much the same. Uh, unlike some of the other movies we're going to be talking about in this podcast, this one, uh, this one's got some some big problems in it. I mean, they all do, but man, this one's just got some that are really, really hard to overlook. Tonight's movie is Warmonger Kids Comedy. Short Circuit. Well, yes, it was came out in the summer of uh, 86. I remember seeing it in the theaters, actually. And it's the story of what happens when a robot called uh, Number 5 in the series of five war robots... This, co- whole com- this whole movie is like one big commercial for a surge protector. <laughs> Isn't it? Because like, yeah. if he had been in the surge protector, he wouldn't have... You know, everything wouldn't have happened and, you know, we would still be on the path to nuclear domination. Uh, so, but anyhow, it was hit by lightning. Yeah, just real quick, by the way, there are going to be huge spoilers in this podcast. So if you're like, oh, I, don't tell me what happens in short circuit, just pause it and watch, go watch it and then uh, come right back. Sorry, Ralph, please continue. During a military demonstration, the robot number five is hit by lightning while being charged, suddenly embedding him with some sort of solar consciousness. He escapes from the Nova Labs where he was created and is then pursued by his creators and a security team that have been trained to eliminate the robot. Number five finds refuge with Stephanie, who is a health food Stephanie food is cart. sort of like a bubbly female version of Noah's Ark. She has so many animals in her house. When we get into her, I have a whole list of all the animals that I saw. So yeah, number five finds solace with Stephanie, who thinks he's an alien, and she's just so flattered to have been chosen for the aliens to visit her that she basically lets number five tear her house apart and then lets him watch TV all night. So he basically becomes, you know, sort of ADD-affected child for the rest of the movie, where he just spouts movie and TV lines and does uh, wacky antics. This is very much in the shadow of E.T., mm-hmm. of the hyper-intelligent character who changes the lives of everybody around him. And just like the mid-'80s, it was that time when all of kids' movies were had robots of some sort in the shadow of Star Wars, and we had them in Space Camp. We even had it in Rocky Four the same year. Just in case you're confused as 1986, our two leads are Ali Sheedy and Steve Gutenberg. Oh, my God. I have so much to say about both of these people. But first, let's talk about number five, who by the end of the movie is known as Johnny Five. That's his choice. So the acronym for these robots is SAINT, S-A-I-N-T. Ralph, I'm sure in your, your notes somewhere you have what that stands for. All I remember is the N is for nuclear. That's the only part that matters. It's, it's like synthetic <laughs> it's like android. Strategic android intelligent. Something technolo- some nuclear tact- technology. Tactical? I don't know. Doesn't matter. It's not here. I have the internet. It's to look for it. It's, you can tell they've really bent over backwards to try to come up with some sort of an acronym that I didn't pay that much attention because it just didn't make sense. 
strategic artificial intelligent nuclear uh, transport. Sure. Of course, yes. Why not? It's completely a vehicle. The best thing about the movie is the robot. It's all done practical with animatronics, and the work is phenomenal. Let's be clear. The best thing about the movie, technically, like like as far as like the ability to get special effects and the way it looks, is a robot. If we're talking about character development, then we're going to have to talk about someone else. But you mean as far as like special effects and like I making would say it the character. Neat. I would say the character too, because the characters in this movie aren't very good characters. The charm of Johnny Five when we were kid was that. That this was this robot that was like a big child and he watched a lot of TV and thus could recite lots of TV and he was constantly pulling quotes from various commercials and this and that and that's what charmed me as a kid. Um, He's also a horn dog. Like, he sees Ali Sheedy in the bathtub and tells her, nice software, which is a young girl who tells you, great, even robots can sexually harass you. There really is no safe space. The only safe animals are the kittens. Uh, the 20 or so kittens in Ali Sheedy's home, but they're constantly walking on the stove, getting close to the burner. Sorry, I have a real issue with how many animals are in this house and how constantly in danger they seem to be. Okay, so I'll get into that in a second. Going back to the robot. uh, No, no, no. We're going to stay with these animals. What were the animals that you saw in the house? I know you made a list. Okay, so here's my list. Ali Sheedy's character has easily between 12 and 15 cats in the house, if not 20 including many kittens on the stove by the burners as as things cooking on the burners have steam in them. This is so dangerous for these cats. I'm not a cat person, but this is incredibly, uh, incredibly dangerous. She also, in the house, has a skunk and a ferret. And outside, she has two dogs, a caged raven, geese, a raccoon, chickens, sheep, a donkey. I mean, I can't even... Yeah, I mean, first of all... That's fine. If she wants to have this many animals, if she takes care of them, it's a huge house. It's sort of, kind of, I guess, out in the country. Uh, more power to her, because it seems like she rescues these animals. Though I do have a problem with the raven in a cage, that, that bird. I feel like he needs more room or needs to be specifically with a, an avian wildlife rehabilitator. What I worry about is two things. A, the smell. That's just so many pets in a house. And B, she spends portions, huge portions of this movie just not there not having made any plans for somebody to take care of these animals. And they also never show her taking care of any of them. She never feeds them. She never changes a litter box. She's just handing Johnny Five more books to read and, and the television remote. Now, I, I admit, I admit that you don't have to show all of the important things that happen off stage happening on stage. Like, you don't have to show every time somebody walks into a room and closes the door. But... Man, like anything. You couldn't even see pet food in there. In most movies, if there's like a pet, there's pet food somewhere in the corner. Almost everyone in this movie really isn't a character. Here. No, there's just it's like a, what they what a kid imagines it. Like when I, you know, however old I was when I was obsessed with this movie, she was. This is my dream. This is my dream life to live somewhere to not be allergic to cats, so I could have fifteen of them in the house to have my own skunk, to have my own raven, a bunch of geese following me everywhere. This was the dream. Oh, I, there were chickens too. I don't know if I'm. Yeah, I mentioned that. Um, this was the dream, and then you grow up, and I have one dog, one dog, and just feeding her and making. Making sure she gets taken out and everything is just so monumental. I can't even imagine 15 plus like seven other species. She really exists to be a cheerleader for Johnny Five. That's That's true. That's all she really does in the movie once she meets him. Her life 
is pretty much surrounds him. Yeah. She doesn't have any aspirations as a character. No, she walks away again from all of these animals in her house to go on this bizarre journey with him to talk to his creator and try to save his life and then go off in the mountains while they have some sort of detente and, and uh, you know, inter-robot human peace treaty. Yeah, she's, she's, she's a trip. She's not ogled. Except, okay, well, we'll get into that in a second. She dresses in this, you know, I I loved her outfit. I loved the baggy sweaters and the big Floyd peasant skirts and the boots. I'm there for her fashion. I I think she's a fashion icon. I love that she hates the military industrial complex. I loved that when she calls Nova about the robot, she has to speak to their head warmonger. I didn't even know what a warmonger was, but I knew that it was something sassy to say to people who were doing bad things. And I loved that. But it is a little frustrating that she is willing to put everything that supposedly means so much to her on hold just to follow this robot that, you know, ultimately is an inanimate object and and is a war machine. thing that I didn't remember about the movie was really how shrill the characters are overall. She is, she, yeah. And because I'm saying it's not just her. No, it's it's, definitely not just her. But because Ali Sheedy is about as charming as she can be in the role, the role just doesn't make sense when you step back from it. When she yells, it's at her enemies. The thing that really shocked me here was just how uninteresting the characters were. Like... Steve Gutenberg's character. Um, Sorry. Let's see. Newton Crosby. Newton Crosby. Is it subtle that he's supposed to be smart? Here's the thing. Sorry, Ralph. I'm going to interrupt you a little too much tonight. Okay. So as a child of the 80s, I found Steve Gutenberg so charming. I loved him in Short Circuit. I loved him in Three Men and a Baby. And then when I grew up, I loved him in Party Down. If you haven't seen Party Down, stop whatever you're doing and watch watch it. It's only two seasons. It's amazing. It's so funny and dark and brilliant. Ah, oh, I love it. Anyway, so I had a very I had very fond memories of Steve Gutenberg being smart and charming. And then I watched this movie and realized that was all bullshit. He's so cocky. He's just like human version of like smirk emoji. In this movie, Steve Gutenberg is just like a human version of the phrase, well, ain't I a stinker? He is. He spends the whole movie just sort of smirking and, and you know, pretending he's smarter than everybody else. And I, I guess he is. But part of me, probably because I watched him a lot at the same time, part of me as a kid believed that these, this movie operated in the same universe as real genius. And as an adult, there is no fucking way these are the two (laughs) these movies are in the same universe because the kids at real genius are so smart and you can you can see it in everything that they do and how they approach life and how they approach situations within the confines of that movie like they just they come off as really like smart engaged thoughtful people goot in this movie is just like he's sort of like the cool surfer dude and stereotypical high school movie who's just coasting through class so he can get out and chase babes except in this movie supposedly he does not know what a what woman is Ugh. Well, it's um It's I mean it's fine. It's a kids movie. So, I will say, I will say Ali Sheedy's character, fine. Steve Gutenberg's character, fine. These are fine for kids. From what I know, the original script was a lot more complicated and the screenwriters of it were SS Wilson and Brent Maddox who did Batteries Not Included and an, and an actually phenomenal script, Tremors, from uh, 1990. At their best, they can create very idiosyncratic and interesting protagonists. And apparently the original version of Newton Crosby was meant to be this uh, sort of intellectual person who didn't know how to talk to people and was sort of cut off from the world. This adventure makes him 
reach out and connect with people again. But Steve Gutenberg has no socialization issues. He can charm anybody. He's a, he has none of the character's intrinsic problems. It sort of turns it into a bit more of the cartoon. Again, as a kid, you don't pay attention to this. As a kid, I think, in a lot of ways, and we see this in a lot of the movies we talk about on this podcast, in a kid, you just sort of, you believe what you're told. And the movie tells you Steve Gutenberg is, his character, Newton Crosby, is a genius. He's reclusive. He doesn't know how to talk to women. And, um, but he's a great, lovable guy, and you should find him great and lovable. And we buy this. And I think that's the general approach the entire movie has. That's why I liked the movie as a kid. It was this idea of lovable. Johnny's lovable, and uh, and Steph's lovable, and he's lovable. <laughs> and so you're you're happy to go along with him. At least I was back in the day. The movie itself was made by John Badham, who had directed Saturday Night Fever and War Games, and uh, Blue Thunder for uh, was another one that people watched back then. And he seems to be trying to do this Spielberg approach is what I would call it. The sort of Spielberg light of uh, everything sort of magical. It was shot in Astoria, Oregon, which is where the Goonies, Goonies was, was shot, for yeah. instance. And behind the scenes, it's top-notch. Sid Mead designed Johnny Five. He was uh, he worked on uh, Blade Runner. He worked on Aliens. He was like one of the, the best futuristic uh, designers. And it's pretty clear from Johnny Five's design that he was the influence for Wally uh, with the eyes in particular. Outside of what we've talked about that everyone remembers about this movie is probably the theme song. In fact, that is the one thing that everyone remembers, which is Who's Johnny? If you want to see something that is utterly bizarre, check out the music video, which is online. And I can't think of a weirder music video as a tie-in to a movie. The video is weird. Steve Gutenberg's not in it. It's just a cardboard cutout of him. I mean, I found the song very charming at the time. I found, um, I enjoyed the uh, "Come and Follow Me" song a lot. They, um, it introduced me to Saturday Night Fever. Got to admit, first time I saw that movie, that's, that was a that was an awkward experience watching that with my family when I was like eleven years old. A lot of themes in that movie that are hard for kids to process and embarrassing to ask about, and uh, sort of painting adult life kind of bleak. But, I don't know, there's that one weird moment of connection where Johnny Five and Stephanie are dancing late at night to the movie. Maybe that's supposed to be sort of like capturing the one positive aspect of Saturday Night Fever that, you know, you can have this one glorious moment when you just go out there and dance. And the chaos around them, they're enjoying that moment. You know, I thought that was sweet. Then you get to the real issue, which is that... Well, there's one character that we're going to talk about fairly extensively, but real quick, can we touch on the villains before we get to that? Or do you want to, how do you want to do this? No, no, no. We can go straight into the villains. It's, it's two actors that are really good. Austin Pendleton playing the boss. And then G.W. Bailey from the Police Academy movies playing, he had a name. It sounds like Scrotum. Yeah. Scroter. That's uh, yeah, yeah. Scroter. It was Scroter. And he played, they play <laughs> cartoons. They don't play anyone that actually seems to have a point of view. They basically have to be just high strung the entire time. And it's, it became uh, aggravating very quickly for me. Austin Pendleton's character, who's the head of this Nova Lab, always reminded me of a sad Muppet. Like, he's sort of flailing and ah, but ultimately just sort of just kind of sad. And he yells, stat, a lot, which I had no idea what that was as a child. He is the perfect argument for why you need a good PR team. 
He's thrust into this incredibly embarrassing situation with dignitaries, heads of the military, senators, a female senator, by the way, which I got to say, thumbs up for this movie, very, you know, relatively progressive, progressive at, at his lab and finds out that one of his five nuclear robots has gone AWOL and he starts freaking out. And, and I get it. I get it. It's a big deal. But this is why you need a good crisis response PR team so that you don't have, uh, you know, your sad Muppet lab leader yelling stats in front of a lot of dignitaries. Why would he want Newton in front of people when it's pretty clear that Newton, Newton doesn't want to be there? He, yeah. d- he doesn't want to be there. He's not going to say anything he wants them to say. Yeah. And it sort of felt like kids can relate to that because their parents are like, go out and talk to your relatives. So, again, it's like it's something that a kid would that's relate true. to. But it's not anything. There's nothing in this movie that's remotely realistic. <laughs> I mean, if yeah. you're thinking about the one thing in this movie that is remotely realistic is the character that I really want to talk about. And that's the character that everybody thinks about when they think about this movie now. And that's the character of Ben. Ben is, um, I don't even know the hierarchy in this movie. Not that it matters. He's He's, his assistant. assistant. Yeah, he's sort of Newton's assistant, played by... Fisher Stevens. Played by Fisher Stevens in brownface. He's in brown makeup because he's supposed to be Indian. He has an Indian accent and he constantly just makes malapropisms. And... I admit, when I was a child in the 80s, not knowing anyone from India, never having met anyone from India, I thought this was the funniest thing ever. And it wasn't until years later when I started understanding what uh, racist caricatures looked like that I became so uh, horrified that this that this was not only in this movie, but in another movie, in the second movie as well. We're not going to really talk about Short Circuit 2 tonight because A, I don't remember it fondly. I did see it in the theater and just fucking hated it because it was in you know even back then it didn't match up to the first one which as we're discussing tonight has a lot of issues and also i haven't rewatched it in decades but i'm just going to go ahead and assume it does not hold up it doesn't and i actually remember the movie i'm sorry um so so there's this character that's basically in brownface says things like I don't know. He's got a million sort of jumbled phrases like gag me with a fork and um, well, he, he I have to go to the Jack instead of the John. And it's all said with this very sort of Apu from The Simpsons. Before there was Apu from The Simpsons. Yeah, pr- proto-Apu from The Simpsons uh, accent. It is so cringe- cringeworthy is really like the kindest way I can describe it. The other issue with Ben, as if it's not bad enough that he's, you know, just got this bad accent. And Raffle will talk. Don't worry. Raffle will talk uh, about Fisher Stevens and his process with this, you know, developing this character. But so not only does Ben say, you know, all these funny things that we're supposed to laugh at, but he's also so sexist and keeps referring to Stephanie as girly and makes jokes about like how much he enjoyed the time he was pinning her to the ground. And it's just so icky. Icky is like, again, the kindest way I can describe it. But like, yeah, you can't even really feel that that sorry for the character, and that's just frustrating. It's frustrating on multiple levels, which cumulatively makes it even more frustrating. The only thing I liked about Ben was there's this moment where Newton Crosby is asking him, where are you from, originally? And he makes some comment about, like, Cleveland, or some city in Ohio. And then Newton is like, no, 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 where are your ancestors from? And he's like, oh, Columbus. Or something like that. It's another city in Ohio. And I thought that that was brilliant. The The story behind the character was pretty much he was supposed to be an American grad student. They decided to turn him, the character Indian, so they got Bronson Pinchow for the role. Why he was 
good for the role. I don't know. But he then got well, perfect. Oh, because he was on. Well, he he could do the, the accent probably. No, he wasn't on Perfect Strangers. I know, but I'm he, saying he could probably do an accent, and that's. I'm sorry, Ralph just told story. And then uh, he got Perfect Strangers, and then left, and then they brought Fisher Stevens back in, and so it's it's sort of crazy because he went method. He went to India for like, like a, a month. month. He studied. And then he, they did brownface, and He's, I did. He claims that like he studied yoga as part of the preparation for this character. I am not sure. I, I believe it. That. No, 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 I, no, I saying, do like, believe how it. How does that prepare you for the experience of being Indian American? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not Indian. Maybe, maybe in that country, it's it's practiced differently than it is in this country. Well, it wasn't being practiced here at all, really. This is the last instance I can think of of brownface or the equivalent of being in a movie. And being accepted because uh, it was enough to be in a sequel that, I mean, I remember I liked the character as a kid. I am not going to to lie about it. I thought he was funny. I thought he was funny in the second movie. I was happy to see him back. And it wasn't until later that I went, oh my God, this is, this is horrible. Back then we knew blackface was bad. That was made very, very clear. A movie like Soul Man came out the very same year. I was just about to read Soul Man. And it, it got attacked at the time. For everyone who doesn't know, sorry, Soul Man is a story of a, a, a white dude who wants to get into Harvard Law. Mm-hmm. So he decides to play the. He decides to take advantage of affirmative action and takes a bunch of tanning pills and looks black and then just spends a movie in blackface. Yeah, this was a thing. This this was a movie that happened. And this movie, comparatively, no one knew he was actually Indian. And that sort of the surprise and the shock of the situation here. And I think it's easy to look after the fact and go, our black culture was was progressing more in terms of representation. But it would be a while until Indians and Asian characters would be represented better. Because a year before, Joel Grey had played a Korean character in, in Yellowface in Remo Williams' Adventure Begins. It's a bad moment in, Amer- in American cinema, but it is also thankfully... But thankfully, it's one of the last. Fisher Stevens went on to be in Hackers. He produced the documentary The Cove about dolphins that that did very well and actually uh, was very open and discussed it later with Aziz Ansari. Right. But if you read that article with Aziz Ansari, by Aziz Ansari, he even mentions that it's not until the end of their interview that it seems like it's not even until the end of their interview that he starts sort of emitting any sort of like remorse or understanding that, oh, this wasn't this wasn't okay. What I did wasn't okay. Perhaps I am paraphrasing incorrectly. The argument that I need to present here is that, look, even if we laughed at it as kids, A, that doesn't make it right, and B, that makes me angry that we didn't have better resources as as kids. I'm angry that I didn't that I didn't know better. I'm angry that I wasn't given a greater range of movies and books and music and everything to introduce me to other people. Other cultures, other races. It's embarrassing that I thought that this was funny. And I'm I'm ashamed of it in that, again, like I was a kid. Yes, I didn't know any better. But I'm angry that I didn't have more of a worldview presented to me. That, that this was just presented as okay. It brings to mind this book that I loved when I was a kid. It's this big book of stories from around the world. And after a relative passed away, I've lost my grandparents in the last few years and a lot of stuff sort of been shipped back and forth between my hometown and where I live now. And I found, I found this book that I loved when I was a kid. It's got, it has mold on it. So I photographed the whole thing so I could keep it and throw the book out. And as I was going through it, I realized a lot of these stories are 
culturally insensitive is a nice way to put it. They're just flat out racist. They turn, they take people from different cultures, take a couple of stereotypes about them. And that just becomes the whole fucking joke. And that makes me so angry that this was okay. And if you go on Amazon, you see reviews for, for that book. People say like, Oh, people are too easily offended. This kind of thing was back in the day was fine. They didn't mean it mean there are a million excuses for why it's okay. Just because somebody loved it. And the fact is it's, it's not, it's still hurtful. It's still mean. And it should never have been okay. I mean, you know, again, like, I'm not going to say I was a bad person at nine years old for thinking this movie was funny. I was ignorant. I'm not anymore. And I don't want to be anymore. Well, I talked with, uh, with an Indian American filmmakers. And one thing we were discussing about is that there's particularly a process of representation that tends to go with almost all cultures in terms of how our society assimilates it. It's like, first they're the enemy, then they're the exotic native. Then if they're a key role, they're played by a white person. Then they may become a magical character or a respected culture. Then they might actually become a sidekick or comedian and then the lead. This has happened very regularly in our media. And I sort of want to say this to say, stuff like this still happens now in in subtler ways. This type of gross characterization happens very regularly. And I'm here to say that's not okay. It's still not okay. Mm, It's not okay that there's a progression. It's not okay that there have to be like layers of assimilation. The thing we experienced when we were young at the same time, if I saw Cubans, they were basically being... They were either drug dealers or they were uh, attacking the United States. And a bunch of American teenagers were shooting them and killing them in Red Dawn. And that was my first exposure to my culture, for instance. Yeah, I got to see Born in East L.A. and uh, Three Amigos as representations of my culture. And then on a more personal note, my grandfather wasn't allowed to sit in some parts of the movie theater because he was Mexican. My mother remembers going to buildings in my hometown and having separate water fountains. Sorry. Uh, I'm not sorry. This is something that just, it hits, it, it hits close to home. It would be really easy to sort of be the little turtle that, you know, a lot of us have to be just to survive, but it does make me angry. And it makes me angry that I loved this so much as a kid. Uh, and that I thought it was okay saying, this is a funny thing. It's funny. It's okay to laugh at this. It's okay to laugh at somebody. It's okay to laugh at somebody who has taken the time to learn your language. You don't know his language, but he's taking the time to learn your language and try to fit into your culture. And he's not doing it right. So that makes him the butt of the joke. I, I know that this podcast is about movies, so we will move on. So I've, I've mentioned on and off to my coworkers that I'm doing this podcast. And when I mentioned Short Circuit, one of them just said, oh yeah, that's, that movie's bad. Now, <laughs> she might've meant that it's silly, but... But that's the reputation that's built over time. Because a lot of other movies have developed cults that you know aren't particularly good some have even developed cults as being just bad movies that are fun like like name one from around this era mac and me oh god almighty um sorry i didn't see that one coming um ultimately i don't know i mean if you remember it fondly this podcast isn't going to change your mind i don't expect it to if you haven't seen it in a while just say enter at your own risk if you haven't seen it You'll probably be all right without it, uh, unless, you know, you're really passionate about robot movies. So signing off from the couch, yelling about warmongers and racist characters and uh, trying to figure out the healthiest ways to move forward. This is us talking about what the kids were watching. 
What the Kids Were Watching has been produced and hosted by Sada Ruiz and Rafael Ruiz. Theme music provided by Pete Seibert. For more information on our podcast and to read the companion blog, well, really more of a cartoon sidekick, you can go to whatthekidswerewatching.com. You can also find us on social media. Look for What the Kids Were Watching on Facebook, What the Kids Were Watching on Instagram, and What the Kids Were on Twitter. What the Kids Were Watching, copyright 2020, RARWorks, LLC.